Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I would invite you to open your copies of God's Word to Luke 23. My Bible's open there to Luke 23. Our text today, verses 32 through 43. And the title of the message, Grace from the Gallows. And while you're turning to the passage, I want to make a confession. I like John Wayne movies. I particularly like John Wayne Westerns, and my favorite is one called Big Jake. And of course, John Wayne plays the title character. And one of the opening scenes, Jake is looking over a boulder several hundred yards away. There are some men gathered around a tree. They're obviously there to hang someone. And he mumbles to himself, you know better than getting involved in someone else's business. But just about that moment, a child runs up and one of the men on horseback kicks the child to the ground and that's more than Jake could bear. So he rides up to the tree with his rifle in hand and he inquires about the crime that the man on a horse with a noose around his neck had done. It turns out he was not a robber or a murderer. His crime was that he was a sheep farmer and these renegade ranchers were cleansing the valley of sheep farmers. This man happened to also be from Scotland. His sheep were grazing in the distance behind him and the little boy was his helper. And the man who was in charge of the hanging looked at John Wayne and said, you know, you really shouldn't barge in on other people's business. You really shouldn't. And uh, John Wayne, big Jake in the story agreed. He said, you know what, you're right. And so with that, he offers the shepherd $400 for his entire flock. And believe it or not, this Scotsman with a noose around his neck sitting on a horse began to dicker about the price. Finally, he realized that was the best offer he was going to get that day, and he took it. And John Wayne said, well, now it's my business. And he told the men if they ever molested this man again or the little boy that he would hunt them all down. And that's how we were introduced to Big Jake. Well, that's a fictional story, but we like a story about an 11th hour reprieve. This man who thought his days were over was given a new lease on life. There's a true story that I love to tell. It's about a man by the name of James Lee. James Lee was convicted of murder in rural England in 1895 on very flimsy and circumstantial evidence. But there was no one else uh, who they could accuse and so they pinned it on Mr. Lee. And so in that day, uh, England still had capital punishment and the method was hanging. And there were professional hangmen in those days whose job it was to build the gallows and test the equipment so that nothing went wrong. And the most famous hangman in England at that time was a man by the name of James Barry. He was contracted by the government to build the gallows and he was very meticulous. He tested his equipment um, and it was working perfectly. And then came the day of the execution. And uh, not only did the gallows fail once or twice, but three consecutive times when the door was supposed to fall and the execution take place, it didn't happen. And so uh, the accused was sent back to his jail cell and in conference with the lawyers, it was determined that this was not a failure 
of the gallows or the equipment, it was ascribed historically and is on the books today as an act of God. And so the judge acquitted uh, the accused and sent him on his way. He ultimately migrated to the United States where he died in 1945 in the state of Wisconsin and forever he's known as the man they couldn't hang. Well, this morning we're going to examine the biblical account of a man who was offered grace from the very gallows. We know him as the thief on the cross. Let's read his story beginning in verse 32. Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves, and the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. And there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing, reading of this, his word. Now we began this study verse by verse through the gospel of Luke on November the 6th, 2016. Barack Obama was president and I was not yet wearing reading glasses in my study, but things change in five years, but people rarely do. We have examined several people or groups of people that take part in Jesus, Jesus crucifixion through the pen of Dr. Luke. Let me just remind you of some of them. There were the disciples who broke bread with Jesus in the upper room and went out with him to the garden of Gethsemane and they were sleepy disciples. They couldn't keep awake even for an hour to pray with Jesus. They also proved to be fearful disciples and on the day of his crucifixion, they proved to be absent disciples. There was Judas, of course, who was worse than absent. He was a traitor for 30 pieces of silver. He sold his loyalty to the Lord Jesus. There was Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, who were hypocrites, charged with upholding the law of the land. They were guilty of the worst sorts of crimes and blasphemy. Uh, there was the Roman representative, Pilate, who was politically savvy, but unfortunately violated his own conscience and going along with the crowd. There was Herod Antipas and all he wanted was to be entertained. He wanted to see some miracle or trick and Jesus wouldn't play that game with him. There was the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, a group of 70 supposedly pious men who conspired together to lie and cheat and blaspheme and ultimately to murder Jesus. But today we're gonna to look at a couple more of these characters. I wanna remind us though, that as interesting as these characters are, they are bit players. Jesus is the central character of the Bible. I'm vain enough to go back and listen this week to that first sermon in this series five years ago. I noted a couple of things. The pastor sounded way younger, voice was a little higher and he talked way faster. 
noted something else on the time signature. His sermon was 23 minutes long, and two weeks ago it was 41 minutes long. So people do change a little bit, I suppose, over time. But in the first two minutes of that sermon, I said this, I hope that throughout this study, no matter how long it takes, we'll remember that Jesus is the central figure of the Bible. And I hope that we've continued through this five years to believe that. But as we see that, we also see that God in his sovereignty often uses other human beings, as insignificant as they may seem, to bring about his eternal redemptive plan. And so whether it's a criminal on a cross or a traitorous disciple or a high priest or a Supreme Court judge, God is so sovereign, he uses all of their sinfulness and deeds and words to bring about his plan of redemption. That's how sovereign our God is. And so let's look at some more of these characters. The first one we see today is the malefactors. The malefactors, that's an old King James word. I read from the New American Standard and the editors of the Standard Bible just call them criminals. Scripture says that two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And so these were bad guys. Substitute in the word that you want, robbers. The gospel writers use various words. They were outlaws. They had been found guilty in the court of law and they were guilty as we'll see in just a moment. Likely they were insurrectionists and had turned to a life of crime on the lamb to make their living. Many of these uh, roadsides um, had caves in which these outlaws would hide. Um, they would seize upon those who were traveling from city to city. It was a dangerous prospect in those days to travel, especially by night. Jesus told the story we know as the Good Samaritan who was waylaid by outlaws. That was not an unusual thing. This was one of those outlaws. And believe it or not, this guy, as he was being nailed to the cross, he and his compatriot, Rather than repenting, rather than asking for mercy, they were using their last breaths to join the crowd in cursing and mocking Jesus. The scripture tells us both of them were hurling insults at Jesus originally. Now, the Romans were masters at crucifixion. They had taken a practice from an ancient civilization and perfected it so as to cause the greatest amount of pain and to allow the accused to suffer for a long period of time because they used these crucifixions as deterrents. What I mean by that is they were always done publicly and they usually were done at a busy intersection where there would be hundreds if not thousands of people who would see this and they wanted them to see what happens to people who go up against the Roman government. And so they were trying to deter others from doing the same. And so these malefactors were those who went up against Rome and lost. Now the second group we see here are the mockers. We see them in verse 34, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots dividing up his garments among themselves and the people stood by looking on and even the rulers were sneering at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine. So here are the mockers. We have every strata of civilization represented here from the city of Jerusalem, from the lowest to the highest. Beginning with the lowest, you had those criminals. They were joining in the mocking, even as they were dying. You have what Luke calls here the people who 
were joining their voices in unison, criticizing Jesus, mocking Jesus. The people here would be the hoi ploi, the common folk. These are the folks who just a few days earlier welcomed Jesus into the city of Jerusalem as he rode that foal of a donkey. They laid their garments down for him and palm branches and they sang, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They welcomed him as the coming Messiah. And just days later, those same people are cursing Jesus. The fickleness of the mob is at play here. And then there's the religious rulers. I take that to be the upper crust, the Sanhedrin, surely were there, probably the high priest. Many of the Pharisees who hated Jesus likely were there, and they were probably whipping up the people into a frenzy. And even the Roman soldiers joined in. Now, they usually didn't have much to do with uh, the Jewish people, we're told from history, but they certainly had no great love for the people, and they always loved a good time. And so to them, this was all a big joke. They divided up the one piece of property Jesus had, which was his garment, by the way, which is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Psalm 22. And uh, then they joined the people and saying, if he's a king, come down. And so everyone was joining together, even supposedly the highest and most dignified and noble man in the city, Pilate who represented Rome itself joined in. Well, you say, well, it's not said that Pilate was physically present. Well, look a little closer, verse 38. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. The other gospel writers tell us who wrote that inscription. It was none other than Pilate. And remember he did it, I think for two reasons. One is he, he wanted to mock Jesus as the others were doing, but really he wanted to get a little dig in against the Jewish leaders. He resented the fact that they bullied him and backed him to a corner and forced him to go against his conscience. And so when he wrote the inscription, the king of the Jews, they didn't like it. They said, no, change it to, he said that he's the king of the Jews. And he said, what I have written, I've written. And so all of this is working together um, to cause Jesus to look foolish. That is really the point. It's, it's a mock worship of a king, of a deity. Really, they're praying him for the fool, as we saw last week. It started back a few hours earlier when Jesus was sent down the street to Herod's quarters. Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with Jesus, and he heard that Jesus was from Galilee, and he said, well, the governor of Galilee, Herod's in town. Send him down there. Herod couldn't find anything to charge Jesus with either, and Jesus wouldn't play along when he wanted to be entertained, and so he allowed his men to mock Jesus, to play him for the fool. And you remember what they did? They took one of Herod's old robes and they put it around Jesus' shoulders. And I think probably what happened, reading between the lines, Jesus comes back down the street to Pilate's quarters and the Roman soldiers saw him wearing that robe and they thought it was hilarious. And so they began to join in. The scripture tells us they found one of their old robes, which was red, scarlet, the, the, the color of nobility, and they put that on Jesus. And then they formed a crown of thorns and pressed it into his head. They put a scepter in his hand and they began to worship him. And it was all a big joke. They gave him sour wine for his refreshment as their king. And then the ultimate joke is every king has to have an entourage. And so when they crucified him, they put Jesus in the middle and these two brazen criminals as his entourage, one on the side on the right and one on the left. And then they put that inscription over his head, the king of the Jews, isn't it a joke? 
Jesus, save yourself, they said, if you're the king. Come down from the cross. Even one of the criminals said, if you are the king, save yourself and us. That is, if we're your courtiers, if we're your honorage, save us when you save yourself. And then they all laughed. Those are the mockers. The mockers, which is everyone I can tell in this scene, from all strata of society, are, are put in sharp relief and contrast over against the merciful one. The merciful here is, of course, the Lord Jesus. Look what it says, verse 34, but that is in contrast, in opposition to what the crowd is doing. Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. The dictionary describes um, the word mercy as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. And so the question is begged, was this an act of mercy? For it to be an act of mercy that Jesus uh, said this, it had to be within his power to punish or harm them. So I put it to you, did Jesus have the power nailed to the cross to punish or harm these mockers? Of course he did. Scripture confirms that. It says he could have called legions of angels. Go back and read your Old Testament. You'll find that one angel of the Lord killed thousands of people. Imagine what a legion of them could do. He could have destroyed everyone in the land just with his word. And so I believe that what we find here in these verses is not only an act of mercy, it's the greatest act of mercy in the history of the world. That Jesus, the creator, who was being blasphemed and mocked by his creation, did not strike them dead, but instead interceded on their behalf. We are struck with the greatness of this act of mercy. But I think there's something we need to remind ourselves of here. Each and every time we sin and God lets us take another breath, it is also an act of mercy. Our sin is deserving of God's wrath. Unbelievably, these men and women there that day 2,000 years ago were using their God-given next breath to blaspheme their creator. And Jesus' response is to pray for them and say they don't know what they're doing. Now, I have to admit, I turned that verse over my head a half a dozen times this week. They did not know what they were doing. What does he mean? Certainly, they knew what they were doing. The Sanhedrin knew that they'd lied and conspired against Jesus. They knew their Trials were illegal. They knew, Pilate did, that Jesus was innocent. He declared it three times. He did what he did for political expediency, not based on any sense of justice. What does he mean they don't know what they're doing? I think he simply means they don't have any concept of the breadth and depth of their own wickedness. He is certainly not excusing their actions. In fact, the Bible teaches us in Romans, which we'll study this fall together, that just through natural revelation, what God has created in the universe that we can see with our eyes and smell with our nose and hear with our ears, and the law that God has put on the heart of every human being, that all men are without excuse. And many of the mockers that day had PhDs in the Old Testament law. They are certainly without excuse. They read Isaiah 53. They knew of the suffering servant. And 
It was not because there was enough evidence to prove to them that Jesus was the Messiah. Instead, it was against a mountain of evidence that he was the Messiah that they stubbornly, willfully refused to believe. And rather than striking them dead, he pleads their case. What an act of mercy. Really what I want to focus the rest of our attention today on is not any person, but it's the actions that take place between Jesus and this thief on the cross. Verse 39 again, one of the criminals who was hanged there, I note that when it started, both of them were hurling abuse. Now only one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other responded and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will with, be with me in paradise. Paradise. We saw some malefactors and we saw the mockers and we saw the merciful Lord Jesus. But there can be no mistaking that what we see in the verses that I just read is nothing short of a miracle. Jesus wouldn't perform a miracle to entertain Herod, but with his last breath on the cross, he performed a miracle of regeneration, a miracle of salvation. This man hanging next to Jesus, started his day as a malefactor, a criminal, perhaps even a murderer. He was on the most wanted list, but he finished his day as a saint of the living God. Such is the miracle of God's grace. This is the story of grace. And this story comes with many theological implications in these few short verses. I think first and foremost, the theological implication of the story of the thief on the cross is simply this. It proves beyond a shadow of doubt against all dispute that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As Paul says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Oftentimes when I give an invitation here, I tell you that the only way to come to Jesus is on his terms with empty hands, and outturned pockets. Well, this thief on the cross, if anyone ever came to Jesus that day, it was he. In fact, he didn't even have any pockets. They had stripped him naked to strip him of his dignity. And his hands were forced open, extended, and nailed. He didn't write a check that day to make up for all the money he had robbed along the roadside. He couldn't. He didn't join a civic organization because he died there on the cross that day. He could not have performed any works had he wanted to. And yet Jesus said to him, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Unfortunately, you and I have friends and coworkers that believe that there are many ways to heaven. And the way that most people believe they'll go to heaven is by being a good citizen or by completing some grand gesture near the end of their life that will make up for everything bad they've ever done. I recall some years ago, there's a man who's a billionaire in our country and is known for his outspoken views and his atheism, wrote a check for one billion, B, 
$1 billion to a group of his favorite charitable organizations. This man's now near the end of his life. And before the ink was dried, a newsman thrust his microphone in this man's face and said, tell me why you did this. And this was the first sentence out of his mouth. He said, I am proving today that there's more than one way to get to heaven. He thought by writing a check for a billion dollars, he could make up for a lifetime of blasphemy. Well, we know in this case, that man could not do that. He had no ability to, and it wouldn't work if he did. Salvation is by grace alone. There are some other implications here as we read between the lines. Some of you grew up in a Roman Catholic context, and you were taught that uh, you do the sacraments, and you believe on Jesus, and you go to confession regularly. When you die, you still don't go to heaven. <laughs> you go to purgatory. And there, depending on the uh, amount of sins you've done, you have to suffer a little bit before you're made fit for heaven. By the way, the Bible makes no mention of purgatory. In fact, just the opposite here, Jesus said to this criminal who spent a lifetime in sin, today you'll be with me in heaven, in paradise. No purgatory, no soul sleep that I can tell. There are those even evangelicals who teach that when the body dies, that we go out of conscious existence, waking for the resurrection. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Conscious existence of our loved ones who've gone on before us. And it also teaches that there is no salvation by baptism. We're Baptist church, aren't we? Have it on the sign out front. But we don't believe that salvation is by baptism. We believe that baptism tells the world that we have been saved by grace. It's a symbol. It's a sign. Is there any evidence that this man was baptized? No. That's not to say baptism is not important. It simply means it's not salvific. But I think here's one more implication theologically of the thief on the cross is that there is hope for every man to be saved. We've been studying these characters like Pilate who violated his conscience and Herod who lived for pleasure. These disciples whose ego got ahead of the reality. We've been talking about how to have a clear conscience, how to have your sins forgiven. And maybe someone has sat through these sermons and you say, that's fine and dandy, Pastor, but that's not for me. My sin is too great. The Lord would never forgive me. Here is a man who everybody in that throng of thousands that day would point to as the worst man among them. And Jesus, in his sovereignty, intervene in this man's life and through the Spirit granted him faith and repentance. And when Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world, that includes you. And when Paul wrote in Romans 10, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, that includes you. That includes the thief on the cross. That includes the most, what we would call innocent child. This section of scripture teaches us there's hope for every man, woman, boy, and girl. But I think there's also some implied warnings here. The first is the warning of consequences. Some people, I think, live their life um, with this attitude. They read the story of the thief on the cross and they say, 
That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to live my life in sin, live it up, and just before I die, I'll ask Jesus to forgive me. That's a fool's errand. You remember the story that Jesus told of the farmer who had an incredible harvest? Thought to himself, what am I going to do? Here's what I'll do. I'll tear down the small barns. I'll build bigger barns. I'll put my feet up because I have enough for many years to come. And Jesus said that man is a fool because he did not realize that that very night his life would be required of him. There's not a person in this room that's guaranteed tomorrow. Don't view this story as a pattern for you to live your life. View it as a warning. Here's what I mean by that. Here's a man that lived his life in crime, and he suffered the consequences of that crime. He was guilty. In fact, he finally admitted it to the other thief. He said, we're here for what we've done. He confessed it. I doubt he confessed it during the court of law. He probably lied through his teeth that they had the wrong man. But now he's admitting, he sees it, that the consequences of his sin in this life he deserved. And I think some people think that when they come to Jesus after um, years of living in sin, that he has obligated himself to remove the consequences in this lifetime. He has not. And if through your sin you lose your wife and children, if through your own sin you lose your freedom, in fact, if you even lose your life, He's not obligated to restore all of that. What he says is this, fear not the man who can take the life, but fear the one who can take the life and cast the soul into hell. The point is, as important as your life is here, it pales into comparison to your eternal soul. And if there is someone today listening to this message on death row, there is hope for you. Jesus doesn't promise that the governor is going to call tomorrow and unlock your jail cell as happened to Mr. Lee in the introduction. There's no promise of that. What he promises is if you'll bow your knee to his authority, if you'll believe on him and turn from your sins, you'll spend eternity in heaven. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what I mean when I say there is hope for every man. But the warning is this, do not presume on the grace of God. Don't presume that he owes you another day. And don't presume that he owes you an easy life. He, he does not. Now, as we look at this story, it's interesting because as I look around here, I don't see too many lifelong criminals. Don't see too many roadside bandits. I see very clean and well-educated and nice neighbors. Come close and I'll tell you this. If you're here today and you're born again and your eternal address is heaven, you had to come to Jesus the same way the thief on the cross did. And that is some steps had to happen. The first step we see of this man is he turned from being a blasphemy, a blasphemer to someone who feared God. And so in a moment, he goes from joining in the insults and the mockery to being shocked at them. He, he said to his partner, who he'd probably been partners in crime with for years, do you not even fear God? 
since you're under the same sentence of condemnation. And the implication, I think, is he had begun to fear God. Rather than cursing the name of God, he, he saw God as a threat. He came, in short, under conviction of his sins. He knew he was in trouble. Obviously, he was about to die, but that was not the biggest trouble he was in. The biggest trouble is he was about to come face to face with his creator, and he would be found lacking. And he said, don't you fear God? And the next step is to run to Jesus, to recognize him as who he claimed to be. This man, though he was a criminal, had certainly heard about Jesus. In their taunts, he had recognized that Jesus must have claimed to be the Messiah. And in listening and observing to Jesus, the Holy Spirit convinced this man that it was true. How do I know that? Because this criminal said in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. This man, this criminal, understood the gospel more clearly than the apostle Peter. Now, what do we take from that? Well, I read a sermon this week of a gentleman who read this passage and declared that this criminal must have been the keenest intellect in Israel. He labeled him the greatest theologian in the New Testament. That with just a brief interaction with Jesus, he was so smart, he figured out that Jesus was the Messiah, put it all together, and then became a Christian. Don't you believe that for a minute? And let me say it this way. There's not a person on earth that will go to heaven because of their keen intellect. No one goes to heaven because they figure out who Jesus is. If anyone goes to heaven, it's because he opened our blind eyes and he breathed spiritual life into a spiritual corpse. That's what happened that day. This can't be explained through intellect or deduction. This can only be called a miracle of salvation. And that's what happens each and every time a person is saved. He gives us spiritual life and we repent of sins. We turn from those sins. And this man didn't have much life left, but he was convinced for the rest of his life, whatever that was, he was going to be a subject of Jesus and that he wanted to be remembered when Jesus came in his kingdom. And of course, the most important element of any salvation experience is forgiveness. Jesus had every right to say, what are you talking about? 10 minutes ago, you were blaspheming me, but... What does Jesus say so gracefully in verse 43? And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There are those who try to um, undo this verse with punctuation. They would read it like this. I say to you today, comma, you'll be with me in paradise. They would say, well, Jesus wasn't saying he was going straight to heaven. He just says one day he would. No one talks like that. You don't say, today I'm about to tell you something that's going to happen today. You just say it because it's obvious it's happening in the moment. So read it that way. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, in heaven. That's how I got saved. Seven years old. Not a criminal on the cross. 
I didn't know what most of the sins were at seven. So sheltered in a Baptist preacher's home. But on my bed one night, Snoopy sheets, as I recall, the Holy Spirit convicted me of sin like you can't believe. I don't know if I'd been particularly sinful that day. I'm sure I'd irritated my brother, probably disobeyed my parents at one time. But the Holy Spirit chose that moment to give me a whole new outlook on myself. It wasn't just that everyone's a sinner, it's that I was a sinner. I was a guilty, deserving of, of God's wrath. And fortunately, I had been taught the gospel, the good news, every day of my life. And so I did what I knew to do. I asked Jesus to forgive me and to be my Lord. And in a moment, the Lord filled me with a supernatural peace that I cannot explain. And I have failed him many times since. But 42 years later, I go back and say, that's the day I was saved. That's the day I was forgiven of sins. And I'm depending upon that till the day I die and beyond. It's not because I figured it out at seven. I hadn't figured much out. Still haven't. Not because I was a great theologian or I was particularly bright. I was none of those things and am none of those things. It was a miracle work of regeneration that he did. And if you're here today, whether criminal or child, if you'll bow your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, his promise to you is that he'll forgive your sin just as he did on the thief on the cross. And whether you die today or in a hundred years, the same promises to you, you'll spend eternity with him in heaven. Let's pray. Each and every time a soul is saved, it's a miracle. The dead live. Father, I pray if there's any in the sound of my voice today, whether in this room or the overflow rooms, or maybe listening even in a jail cell today, I pray that they would understand the implication. Salvation is not by works. It's not what they could do. This man had no works. It's not by baptism. It's not through purgatory. It's not through soul sleep. It's through an instant miracle whereby one's blind eyes are opened and one's dead soul is given life. It's through simple faith. And so Father, I would pray that you would grant faith and repentance to some here today. Pray that they would call out to you and receive that free gift of salvation that is by grace alone. Father, I thank you for many of my friends in this room who are trophies of your grace. I thank you for my own salvation undeserved as much as this criminal on the cross. Help us, Lord, to be more thankful. Help us, Father, to be vocal in sharing our faith to others who know you not. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. And as we look forward 14 days from today to Resurrection Sunday, Lord, we pray that Jesus would be on our lips with every person we meet that we come again and celebrate the resurrection. Father, we pray you do these things for your own namesake, for your own glory. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.